Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Mike Adelic. I am your host, Mike Brancatelli, of course. It is me, it is I, it is the one and only. And uh, we got a good episode for you today. I am uh, not going to do a big kind of ranty open like I usually do because it is a good episode and uh, I don't really have anything to say. I just released like a two hour and 36 minute podcast of just me. So if you want to hear me ranting and raving and explaining and talking and uh, getting getting personal, talking about some personal matters in my life and whatnot, um, then go ahead and go listen to that. It's called what it means to be a man in a world gone mad. And um, so I guess, you know, from that title, you can kind of assume what it's about, right? It's, I talk about, you know, myself and uh, masculinity, being a man, kind of what that means and, and what it means in our culture, um, which is, in my opinion, toxic, very toxic culture that we live in, a sick, a sick kind of culture. And, um, you know, there's uh, a lot of factors that go into making it that way, right? I mean, it's not just like, oh, there's, you know, there's toxic masculinity. Well, there's also, um, you know, feminazis, and there's also all sorts of other things that go into making up the collective canvas that we all exist on. It's not, it's, you can't just pinpoint one thing and say it's that. So anyway, if you want to listen to me for two hour, two and a half hours, <laughs> Go um, go ahead and listen to that. Um, this is going to be, I'm pretty sure this is going to be, it's either this or I might release like a short one before I leave, but this is probably the last episode before I leave on my trip. Uh, if you don't know, I am heading to Peru to uh, work at a resident in residency program at the Temple of the Way of Light, uh, Ayahuasca Center. And... Um, yeah, it's been it's been kind of a uh, um I I don't necessarily want to say it's been a dream of mine, but it's been something that I've been thinking about a lot since I had my experience there and I'm very excited to go back and um you know, honestly, I'm just excited to to be in a role um where I can be of of service helping people and at the same time also or I'll help myself. And I think that's what I'm going to get there. Um, you know, the the ability to work on myself. And, you know, I think when we all take the time to, to take the, you know, when we all take the time and, and, and work on ourselves, we do help others. Because when we improve ourselves, we're one less thing to worry about. We're out of the, you know, we're sort of out of the way. And then we can, you know, we can kind of help other people who uh, don't necessarily have the tools and the skills and the abilities to heal themselves of the suffering that they may be going through. So uh, I'm very excited. Um, there are great people down there, and um, it's a great place, and uh, I'm just really excited to get back to it. And, um, you know, actually, this, this reminds me of recently I listened to, so I, I, never, I never really talk about this, but, you know, I started podcasting because I would listen to podcasts. I, I just listened to a lot of podcasts, and then I got invited to be on one, and I did the podcast with Dave Smith, and I would continue to just be a huge fan of podcasting. 
I was doing stand-up comedy in New York City at the time, and I was walking dogs during the day. Great day job for a comedian, by the way. Unbelievable day job. And you get to hang out with dogs all day. I mean, it's fantastic. The downside, you got to pick up crap. Okay, that's maybe people are like, that's it. I'm not doing that. But, you know, it was pretty cool. Made a decent amount of money. Was able to do comedy at night. And I also got to listen to like five or six podcasts a day. And sometimes I would just pop in audio books because, you know, you're, you're out. You're walking around. You got the dogs. You got the headphones. You're good. That's all you need. I don't need to talk to anybody. I don't need to do anything. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to just consume so much. And I, I really took that opportunity to learn a lot. But I, I'm subscribed to like maybe like 40 or so podcasts. And um, I, don't get the t- I don't have the time to listen to all of them now. Uh, you know, I listen to, I guess, you know, I kind of subscribe and I, and I see them when they come in. And sometimes I save them for later. But a couple of my favorite podcasts are Tangentially Speaking by Dr. Christopher Ryan, author of the book Sex at Dawn, author of the forthcoming book Civilized to Death. Big fan of that dude. Um, and I also, also past podcast guest, Thaddeus Russell, who is an excellent human being as well, huge fan of his. And so both of these guys came out with uh, books around the same time, Sex at Dawn and Renegade History to the United States, A Renegade's Guide to the United States um, by Thaddeus Russell and Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan. They both came out around, I think, 2010, and I read both of them and immediately, you know, was like, whoa, like my mind is, is, you know, my mind was like, constantly getting blown by new information you know i was just constantly having mind explosions whether it was listening to the tom wood show or if it was you know reading sex at dawn reading food of the gods graham hancock uh, fingerprints of the gods and um food of the gods is terence mckenna and then thaddeus russell's book and now thaddeus russell has a podcast called unregistered and it's great it's really great. I mean, this guy was, he, it seems like he was born to do this. You know, it's, it's a really great show. I mean, he's, he asks great questions and his just, his, his mentality is, is in line with somebody who is right on, you know, we're right on the same page. You know, when I had Thad on this show, we talked a little bit about psychedelics, but he's not so much in that crowd of, of things, but he is of the crowd of being somebody who is, um, you know, for freedom to say things that you're, as he says in the intro of his show, not supposed to say, you know, like the, the dangerous ideas that, you know, the, the ideas that we're not supposed to talk about, the stuff that the mainstream doesn't really cover, you know, the, the people who are deemed to be naughty and not acceptable by our polite society, you know, the vagabonds and the tramps and the, you know, the, the, these, these sorts of the weirdos and the freaks and the hippies and, you know, the people that, that polite society cast away. You know, he kind of is like a, a sort of a spokesman, you know, for these people because there's great 
value in ha- in society's having these kinds of people. And, you know, he's sort of, he doesn't really identify himself as a libertarian, but he's definitely like a libertine, you know, li- a, a person who enjoys freedom and liberty, I'll just say that. Um, but anyway, I listened to his latest podcast with uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan, and it was great. Whenever those guys get together, they they always talk about great things. So, you know, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it's like, these are these are the people that I learn from. These are the people that I go, I read their books, I listen to their podcasts, and then I start to think about ideas that I have, that I've discovered in my own experience, in my own research, and then I go, oh yeah, like, you know, this this lines up, you know, this thing that Chris O'Ryan's saying lines up exactly with this thing that Gabor Mate is saying, oh, I want to see if that actually correlates with something that Thaddeus Russell was talking about. Yeah, that does. All right, cool. And I wonder if now I wonder if this would uh, you know equate to something that Lysander Spooner was talking about. Um, and then maybe this also applies to something that uh, Murray Rothbard wrote about. Oh wow, holy shit! Yeah, that does connect. Interesting. So it's um so this is where I gather. You know, this this is where I go to the well to get a lot of my ideas from. And one of the ideas that I love so much is Christopher Ryan's idea of why we're so civilized to death. Why, why, you know, what, what did we lose on, on this, you know, train of progress to, to modernity? You know, it's like, I love, I love his, um, you know, and, and then by, by, by hearing him talk about this, it wanted, it made me go and investigate and read books like Society Against the State, The Art of Not Being Governed, you know, these sorts of kind of, you know, books about our tribal past. And anyway, I made a clip. I made a clip because I think Dr. Christopher Ryan really succinctly explains his thesis of civilized to death, or, or as he would say, his spiel. And um, yeah, go check that out. It's a podcast clip, Civilized to Death, Dr. Christopher Ryan, Unregistered Podcast with Thaddeus Russell. It's on YouTube. And um, I'll put the link in the show notes. Now, talking about people to learn from and, you know, books to read and things like that, this leads me into today's guest. Today's guest is a best-selling author, lawyer, historian, lay theologian, antiquarian. I hope I pronounced that right. I've never said that word before. Antiquarian, jurist, and philosopher. It's none other than Robert W. Sullivan IV. Robert W. Sullivan IV, the author of The Royal Arch of Enoch, the author of Cinema Symbolism and Cinema Symbolism Two, and as well as The Witches of Highgate, A Pact with the Devil. Um, yeah, it, this, was, uh, this was really great. I think I was on Twitter, um, and I was like talking about like symbols in movies or something, and, or, and I think I was actually mentioning something to M- Miguel Connor about Blade, the new Blade Runner movie. And Robert uh, was like, I don't know, me and him just started talking about movies. And then I went and I saw, I was like, holy shit, like, he's got these books. I mean, this is, this is right up my alley. You know, and it's, and it's funny because I, I just, it's, well, not funny really, but I mean, it's just, it's interesting how you, how and when you find out about certain people. Because I, I, I just started to this past year, and I guess you guys can guess a little bit with some of the guests I've had, Julian Vane, um, uh, uh, Gordon White, uh, Miguel Connor, um, you know, other kinds of people, you know, talking about 
magic and occultism and symbolism and these sorts of things. And I'm very, 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 very interested in this area because I know so very little about it. And um, it's just fascinating to me. So when when me and Robert were talking, I, I said, of course, yeah, come on my podcast, please. I'd love to find out more about this stuff. I'm so glad that this door, another door, you know, has opened. And I said this on the podcast before, but they were saying, they asked me a question about what I uh, learned like most in 2017. It was like, I, the thing that I learned the most is that learning never stops. There's so much out there. We're never going to learn all of it, but... Um, this is a particular area of of interest that i that i feel like connects to the sort of psychedelic consciousness you know field that i'm so interested in i'm of course a big fan of uh joseph campbell and carl jung and you know i just i love movies so much and um and obviously i'm curious about freemasonry right cuz uh robert is a uh 32nd degree freemason and uh, and we talk about this in the in the show. We talk all about this in in the show about Freemasonry. What is it? Um, maybe some misconceptions, um, some offshoot branches, rogue branches. You know these sorts of things. And um, but we get into the the movies uh, pretty heavily too. We talk all about the movies. And you guys will see. This is a really cool episode. I was I was really happy to have Robert on. He's a super interesting guy and a really passionate guy. You know, he you get the sense that I mean, obviously somebody who is writing you know six hundred and ninety page books about uh philosophy and symbolism uh masonic rituals the which is the the royal arch of Enoch the impact of masonic ritual philosophy symbolism um when you when you're talking with somebody like this that they're super passionate about these things you know it's not like one of these stupid self-help gurus that's like oh you know 10 steps to unfuck your life you know like just you can do it step two you can do it again you know it's like no there's there's a really deep rich history here of um ancient sort of knowledge and symbols and philosophy and psychology and uh it's it's just so interesting to me like i said I, I just want to dive into this even further, and I will upon my return. Um, but if anybody is interested, if you listen to this show and you're interested, obviously all the links to Robert's work will be in the show notes. Robert will tell you where to go himself. And I look forward to talking with Robert again. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a very interesting very interesting guy, very passionate guy, and a very intelligent guy. And um, I love talking about these movies. They're some of my favorite movies, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Blade Runner. I love stories of myths and monsters and heroes and villains and damsels in distress and the whole nine. It's just uh, super fascinating to me, the archetypes and the collective unconscious and all of those sorts of things and the impact that they have. But enough from me. You guys know what to do if you love this show. Like it, share it, subscribe, spread it around, tell your friends, tell your family members, tell everybody, tell your dogs, cats, lizards, snakes, whoever. 
And um, yeah, and if you want to go a step further, just leave us a, a nice five-star review on iTunes. You can even go to Patreon if you want. That's www.patreon. Do you have to say the www.s anymore? You don't, you don't have to say the www.s anymore. Go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank. And um, yeah, you can even make a one-time donation. I got a PayPal link. That's on my website at mikebrank.com. I love you all. And um, I really will see you on the other side. This might be the last you're hearing from me uh, for another... I might not release a show for about another month. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode, and talk to you later. All right, without further ado, Robert W. Sullivan IV. Enjoy. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. very fascinating me I'm, I'm 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 so glad that you're here to talk about these things because i'm so curious and i hope you wouldn't mind explaining to me and my listeners what this kind of arena that you're operating in is all about it would be uh it would be wonderful and then we could talk some about some movies so where how did this all begin for you what 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 brought you into this this uh field of of knowledge and curiosity what what piqued your curiosity about this Right. It, it, for me, it was always something that had just been there. Um, when I was a child growing up, um, uh, dating myself, um, when I was well, uh, date, I will date myself. I was born in 1971. When I was growing up, um, there was no internet or there was no cable TV. I mean, we eventually got cable TV, but I was probably around 10, 11 years old. And you know, the, the one show that I, I just always remembered watching and I just really was hooked on it was the uh, old Leonard Nimoy in search of. Mm. Uh, and UFOs and cryptozoology and the Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot uh, and ghosts, um, you know, and and you know the occult. This was just something that just always fascinated me. Uh, fascinated me. I just was always in- interested in it um, and just researching it and, and reading about it and reading about the different personalities about it. You know, you know, in the groups, the Freemasons, the Odd Fellows, the Golden Dawn. Certainly, people like Aleister Crowley, John Dee. You know McGregor Mathers, you know, and even even the you know more the politically connected guys, you know, like Rasputin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this was just something that always always interested me, and uh, you know, it, it was just one of those things that you know, ever since growing up, um, you know, I, I always read and, and watched movies about it or documentaries about it, and and it just was it always stuck with me, um, and, and that's sort of you know, but the books I suppose were. A continuation of this it was just like a logical step um you know you know this interest level just really peaked 
for me. And I thought, well, you know, now instead of just being the person who's reading about it and taking the information in, let me be the person who's now putting it out there. Um, you know, so it seemed like the next, next logical step for me. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's pretty much where, where I'm at with it. It was, it, 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 it's funny too, because, um, really the Colonel, I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll won't go for much longer, but really the, the Royal Arch of Enoch was, and I've been on other shows and I've said this before, so I'm not going to belabor the point, was really a, a product of 20 years worth of research. And it was almost like one thing led to another. When Royal Arch came out, it was, uh, it, the last chapter dealt with Masonic, you know, symbolism hidden in film. And that chapter, you know, was from that last chapter that the next book was born out of, which was Cinema Symbolism. And then when I was writing that, I thought to myself, well, you know, there's more movies I want to talk about, but I, I can't because the book will just go on. So let me do a sequel to it. And then when I was writing that, when I was writing the first cinema book, I had this dream, this very lucid dream, which eventually became a pact with the devil, the, the Highgate Witches, the first series of that. So it's almost like one thing led to another, led to another. And uh, I, I certainly didn't plan this out uh, this way, but it happened. And, uh, you know, I, I'm always thrilled to come on podcasts and radio shows and talk about my research and what I'm doing. So you ask me anything you want to. Awesome. That Thanks. That was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Royal Arch of Enoch, that was your first book. And you know, you're like, yeah, one thing led to another. And it was a culmination of 20 years work. I mean, it's like a 600 and plus 90 page book or something like that. Right. Like that's pretty big. That's a hefty load right there. Right. The, the Royal Arch was really the, 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 the acorn that grew the mighty oak that was the Royal Arch started when I was in Oxford University in 1992. I, I never matriculated there, but I was an associate student there. And this was really where I, I got introduced to this whole idea of the hermetic tradition, the occult philosophies, really influencing material culture, influencing society, um, popular culture. You know, whether it be John Dee with Queen Elizabeth, the Freemasons crafting the United States. This is really the time that, um, uh, you know, where, where this really peaked for me. And uh, I, I, I wasn't a Freemason yet, but I started researching and reading about it. I, I had already had a background in this. So, you know, I wasn't, you know, this wasn't like, a, you know, coming to this for the first time. I mean, I knew some material, but I didn't know others. So right. um, this was, you know, really a good starting point for me. And it was a few years later in 1996. Um, this was after I got out of college, but before I went to law school, um, I petitioned a Masonic Lodge to, uh, to join a Masonic Lodge. I, I come from a long line of uh, Masons here in Maryland, so it seemed like the logical thing to do, and it was something I had always wanted to do anyway. So I went through the rituals, and I joined the the, the, the Scottish Rite, which is a high-degree body, and certainly going through the rituals and seeing them really adds to your knowledge. And uh, the Royal Arch was really just researching and writing this, this 20 years of this one particular high-degree um, ritual and how it was being used to craft the United States. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean I, I, what I eventually wound up doing, Mike, was I, I took that 20 years of research. Um, the book was eventually published in 2012. It was subsequently has been republished by me um, in December of 16. But um, I turned that 20 years on Hollywood. And then, and then, you know, I did the first movie book, uh, and that came out at 14, but again, was republished by me last year. And then um, Cinema Symbolism 2, and then I finally got out this work of fiction that I had no intention of writing. I just had this very uh, lucid dream when I was actually writing the first movie book. But I liked it enough, and I, I turned that into a book. And uh, I'm actually, believe it or not, right now, uh, working on five books at once, um, <laughs> although I'm going to 
That's multitasking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you ain't kidding. Um, and it, it's really going to start probably next week where I'm just going to focus on this one more than the others at this point. But um, yeah, there, there it is. Uh, yeah. And four books are, you, you turn around and before you know it, you know, four books are out. It's like, wow, where did the time go? Yeah. And I mean, you know, when you dive into a book like that, I mean, it's just, it's going to be packed with so much information. I mean, we're not going to be able to go over everything that, no. you know, I'm curious about and, you know, my listeners are curious about right now, but hopefully we can give people a taste, you know, and that would be really great. And, and I would, I hope you wouldn't mind maybe kind of taking a step back a little bit and talking just a little bit about, you know, I think that from an outsider's perspective, you know, somebody that doesn't really have uh, an entry point into the, into this world and, and knowledge of this stuff might hear words like Freemason, heretic, you know, um, uh, occultism. You know, they might hear these these sorts of words, hermeticism, and they don't might not necessarily know exactly what they mean. You know, maybe it's swirled up in a bunch of mystery and some confusion, some t- true things, some false things. So, what is it about? I mean, maybe maybe you can kind of help explain a little bit about what it means to be a Mason and what some of these terms mean, and and kind of sure. um, you know, uh, obviously, I think maybe there's you know there's there's good and bad with everything, right? So maybe that we we can clear some things up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions out there with it. There's a lot of bad bad material about it. Um, in of of itself, it, Freemasonry Freemasonry officially as it exists today. Uh, was born in England, uh, in London, on June 24th, 1717. Now, there were Masonic guilds, craftsmen guilds, uh, engineering guilds, working on the continent of Europe, working in Scotland, working on England, Masonic lodges um, that pre-existed this. This is irrefutable. There were hermetic, you know, hermetic groups, you know, studying uh, the hermetic tradition, the occult, the esoteric, um, groups like the Rosicrucians, the Knights Templar. Um, these all were what I call proto-Masonic groups. But masonry proper, as it exists today, officially, quote unquote, comes onto the scene in 1717. Uh, it's a fraternal body. Uh, it's a fraternal order. It does a lot of charity work. Um, in its rituals, I believe, are concealed greater truths. Um, it is not explained to you what these truths are, even after you go through it. Um, it is really up, you know, the, the best way I can describe it is the Masonic teachings and the philosophies and the rituals will put you on the path. It's up to you, you to walk it. Mm. So, for, so for instance, you could join a Masonic lodge, go through the rituals and come out thinking, yeah, hey, that was kind of some weird, you know, rituals I went through. Okay. You know, what's for dinner tonight? Um, you know, I think nothing of it. Um, if, if you really start to look in depth and very few Masons do this, some do, I consider myself one of them, but very few do. If you start looking and researching the symbolism of the ritual and the allegory, you're going to start opening your eyes up to these greater truths, uh, that, that are sort of hidden all around us. Um, but, but are there and it's, it's definitely, you know, documented. Um, it, right. it's a very influential organization. I mean, it helped found the United States. In fact, in the book, I say that a lot of the founding principles of the United States come straight out of the Masonic Lodge. Um, but again, it's really not conspiratorial. Many of the founders were Freemasons, so this this shouldn't really come as a shock to anybody. Um, it's uh, it has it has a very interesting history. Um, Freemasonry really cu- cuts across a lot of um, a, a lot of categories, and I think that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about it. I mean, it deals with philosophy, it deals with ancient religions, um, it deals with Christian Christianity, Judaism, even Islam. Uh, it deals with uh, the occult, hidden, hidden, you know, things, hidden symbols, and symbols with different meanings. Uh, it it de- deals with uh, political allegory, 
um, and certainly has a political influence um, right. with, you know, Masons who, you know, went on to be president or something like that. Or, you know, and it deals with architecture, um, civil engineering, you know, operative masonry. Um, the, the creation of city designs and buildings uh, can be Masonically influenced. So it really cuts across uh, a lot of topics, even popular culture, you know, movies. I mean, you know, you, you can find free Masonic movies, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. So it really it really does cut across um, a lot of topics. And, um, you know, it, it really is. I mean, I, I, you know, I couldn't just go into it, you know, but I mean, you're dealing with you know, not only the Blue Lodge, which is the first three degrees of Freemasonry, but then you get into the high degrees. You get into these different sort of competing philosophies and religious ideas. Um, it, it's very, it's a very deep subject. It's very complex. Um, but it, it really, Freemasonry does encompass so much. Uh, and, and I think that's really one of the things that, you know, really uh, fascinated me about it. It does have you know like the splinter groups off of it like the illuminati and things like that i mean that's a real group um they don't really exist anymore i know some people think they do but they they were around and uh like i said when it when it comes to it, you're just dealing with so many themes in history philosophy religion um it just encompasses so much and uh i, I that's what makes it so fascinating right well that a good explanation there because um that is and you mentioned the illuminati because Sometimes, it, you know, for somebody who's not aware of this sort of thing, they hear Freemason, maybe they'll just automatically think that that's like synonymous with um, uh, Illuminati or something like that. You know, just kind of everything kind of gets jumbled into their brains. And, you know, I kind of can't blame them because it's like, you know, they don't how they're going to investigate all this stuff. But it is something that influences us and it does, you know, show up everywhere we look. And it's funny because the Illuminati, uh, actually, I saw a Taco Bell commercial recently where Taco Bell was kind of making light of the Illuminati. And it was like, go to talk the, it's the, the bell Illuminati. Like they had some kind of uh, secret ritual they were doing at a Taco Bell and they used the all seeing eye and the pyramid and, and that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe we could start talking a little bit about some of that stuff because it is so fascinating. And, and there are so many people that are, that, um, you know, are curious about this stuff, but like I said, don't really know, um, or know where to start, but the, the, the pentagram as a, as a symbol, um, and the, the Egyptian symbology and, and these sorts of things, maybe we can get into talking a little bit, uh, about that and how, um, you know, it's like, you kind of see that, uh, everywhere. And, and you, you also mentioned that, uh, this stuff, you know, this stuff is all around us kind of hiding in plain sight, if you will. Right. I mean, it's not, not necessarily hiding, but it's right there, right? Right. Um, yeah, I've seen the Taco Bell ads also. I think they're very <laughs> funny, um, you know, with the Illuminati. I mean, it was a real group, and it certainly has influence. Um, a lot of Masonic symbolism, well, one of the things I would really stress to you and the listeners when, when analyzing this or when you're you know, researching or looking into it is, especially when you're dealing with symbolism, you know, and especially with esoteric symbolism or Masonic symbolism, is um, it ha- it, 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 the, the context of how it's presented really dictates a lot of what um, is going on. So the pentagram, for instance, could mean something one way, but if you put it in another context, could mean something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, and this is the same thing with movie, a lot of the movie symbolism, you know, one thing in one movie, a symbol or a number presented one way could have esoteric meaning in another movie, but just different meaning. Um, so like the pentagram, for instance, I mean, this is a symbol that's been completely co-opted by the Church of Satan. 
Um, you know, you have the two points up with the one point down, which is left-hand path. Um, this is, you know, what is commonly known as the goat of Mendes. Uh, but, you know, in Freemasonry, it doesn't symbolize that at all. Um, it's what in Freemasonry um, is, is referred to as the blazing star. Um, the, the pentagram can have numerous meanings. Um, one of them has to do with the mathematician Pythagoras. Uh, the pentagram can can symbolize uh, the four points can symbolize the four elements, earth, air, fire, water. And the fifth point can symbolize uh, the ether, uh, your mastery of the four elements. So, you know, when, when you're dealing with symbolisms, and so especially, you know, I, I, I hear all the time from a lot of the people in the conspiracy world. Oh, you know, there's the Masons using a pentagram. That means they're sat Satanists. I mean, that, this is totally false. Um, a, a, a symbol presented one way by one group and another group takes it. Um, you know, it, it has a completely different meaning. I mean, the swastika is another one of these. Right. Um, yes. You, you know, you, you will find the symbol all over the place with Native American Indians, even mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Buddhists mm -hmm. and, and uh, the Hebrews use this symbol um, symbolizing the sun in motion. Of course, this is a symbol that was obviously co-opted years later by the Nazis. Um, so we have to be cautious when we when we get into this in masonry. Um, in, in the Blue Lodge and in the third degree, you are dealing with, and this is, again, one of the things I just find so interesting about this, is a lot of comparative religion. Uh, we deal with themes of Gnosticism, the ideas of divine awakening, divine spark ignition. Um, we have a retelling um, in the Blue Lodge in the third degree of what I would call, the, the, the simplest way to put this is what I would call where the candidate becomes the dying and resurrected God, sun man, uh, you know, archetype or motif. Um, you know, this is the Egyptian mythology. Of course, this parallels or runs parallel with Christianity, where the candidate is killed and ultimately resurrected. Um, it, it's very Egyptian. This is, of course, uh, you know, where the candidate is portraying the Egyptian god Osiris, mm -hmm. uh, and he is resurrected. This is a, a little deep waters here, but but I, I'll do my best to condense the answer. Um, in Egyptian mythology, um, when Osiris was killed by Set. Um, he was risen from the grave by his virgin consort wife, Isis. Um, and the way she, he was risen was she had possessed the secret name of a sun god named Amun-Ra. Um, and what this secret name was, we don't know. Um, we don't know what it was. But it was through the correct pronunciation of this name that she was able to resurrect Osiris and then birth a, a sun god named Horus. Mm. And then Osiris goes off to become sort of the lord of the dead, as it were. Um, in masonry, this, this, this is echoed. Um, with, with this, where the candidate is portraying Hiram Abiff, um, and then he's killed and resurrected, um, a, a, as the Osiris character is. When the when the candidate is brought back to life, he is raised um, on what is called the five points of fellowship. And the five points, of course, five points form a pentagram. And in masonry, the pentagram uh, signifies something called the blazing star. And if you read your Albert Pike, you'll know that is a the blazing star is the Egyptian dog star Sirius, mm. which associates with Isis, uh, the the virgin wife of Osiris. Right. When the candidate's brightest back star to life, in the sky, by the way, yeah, that, that that that's absolutely correct. Yeah, when the candidate's brought back to life, he has a substitute word whispered in his ear, which is the name of God. Only it's not the real name of God; it's a substitute word. Um, the real name of God is lost. Hermabif has it, but when he's killed, it's lost. It's recovered in this high degree ceremonial known as the Royal Arch of Enoch. So we have this deep um, e Egyptian uh, motif, solar motif going on. I mean, when the body's buried, when Hermabif's body, his, his grave is concealed with something called a sprig of acacia. That's a flower sacred to the sun god Apollo. When the candidate is brought back to life, he's raised in what's called the strong grip of a lion's paw. 
lion, Leo, ruled by the sun. So we had this whole dead, resurrected sun man motif. Um, you know, you'll see the parallel with Christianity, of course, with Jesus being resurrected as well. So we, we have this going on inside the Blue Lodge, um, this studying comparative religion, um, where the candidate is symbolically killed and brought back to life. Um, resurrected with the substitute name of God, invoking the five points, invoking the pentagram, invoking Isis, and where the candidate um, then, then you know, you know, would you know symbolize the resurrected sun god Osiris. Um, so yeah, we have this uh, you know very deep comparative religious symbolism story going on inside the Blue Lodge. I- I'm going through this as quickly as possible just because of time. It's a deep study, um, but again, if you're interested in Masonic symbolism and things like that. By all means, take a look at the book. I get it in much more depth. And, and you're, you're absolutely correct, correct, Mike. I mean, you know, when, when you're when you're dealing with Masonic symbolism and architecture, when when you develop the eye for it and, and you understand the context, um, it definitely becomes much more easy to spot and notice. Uh, and again, this is especially true with the movie symbolism. It's it's one of those things where if you start looking, knowing what to look for based on the context of the movie. The esoteric symbolism will start bubbling to the surface. Yes, yes, that's right. And you know, I I've, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell, and it was through Joseph Campbell I kind of went backwards to to uh, Young and you know and uh, the Freud, and uh, I um it's it's interesting because you you just from their analysis of things and their stories and Joseph Campbell, of course, the hero's journey, the mono myth, and the archetypes. Uh, you see it. it. It starts to come out. Uh, the world starts to become more alive with story and metaphor and myth and meaning. And, you know, symbols become energized with, with different kinds of powers and, and interpretations. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm so, uh, I'm, I'm just at the tip of the iceberg with a lot of this, but it's, it's definitely piqued my, my interest uh, tremendously. Um, you know, it was, it's interesting as you were talking, you know, you mentioned that, Right. I mean, you brought up, you know, the Nazi symbol um, and it was actually I think I saw somewhere it was in um, a Buddhist uh, practice used as a symbol for peace. And, it, you know, the Nazis co-opted this. Right. They took it. And and we see that happening a lot. Right. We see that happening. And I know that I, I used to see that happening a lot with, um, you know, I was big big into kind of the liberty movement. I noticed that a lot of, you know, a lot of politicians, it seems like they just pay lip service to the, to the words liberty. They kind of hijack the terms and the meanings and don't really, don't really use the, the true kind of moral, you know, they don't use it in, in its full form in, with the integrity. And that seems to just, you know, that's something that can happen. And, and that's something that I think with it, uh, confuses a lot of people because you start to see these things everywhere. Also, I, I, I read a, I saw a cool graphic comic book written by Douglas Rushkoff, and I forgot who else uh, illustrated it, but it was about, it was called Alistair and Adolf. And uh, it was very fascinating. It was about uh, the, the kind of, I guess it would be called sigil magic. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, uh, it was about the Nazi symbol and how they were winning the war because they had the power of the symbol. And uh, Crowley, and I think it was Ian Fleming was involved as well, the author of uh, James Bond. They um, came up with uh, the V for victory symbol to, to help uh, Britain win the war. Um, sorry, I was a little all over the place with that, but uh, but yeah, I mean that's that's kind of where my train of thought had had led me to, um, and uh, I don't, you know, I think that this this want this is leading me to getting into kind of where I'm really fascinated with, and you know, because I've been a fan of movies my whole life, you know, and and I'm really noticing, you know, these sorts of things come out in the movies that I love. 
Star Wars is probably one of my favorite movie, you know, movie series of all time. Lord of the Rings, huge fan of that movie, uh, movie trilogy, and um, Harry Potter, of course. So these are all uh, examples that you give in your book. Um, and uh, of course, Blade Runner as well is another one. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of those. Uh, if, we, if, we, if you want, we could start with Star Wars. Oh, absolutely. No, um, uh, Star Wars and like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings are essentially the Campbell monomyth, as, as you, you pointed out. You know, the hero's journey, you know, the, 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 what I call the solar hero, um, you know, who goes on this adventure to defeat a dark overlord of some kind. You know, I think the sun is dark versus light. You know what would would best be called? You know, sort of neo manichaeanism light versus dark. I think Zoroastrianism, or if you're you're into the Bible, God versus the devil. Um, this would be you know Harry Potter versus Voldemort. Um, you know Luke versus the Sith lords. Uh, you know Sauron and uh, you know Frodo. Um, so yeah, I mean you you have this uh, hero's journey. I like um, you know I mean it is it's very archetypal. Um, you know, I mean, you know, you, the one character that's always in these things is the hermit figure, um, you know, the wizard archetype. I mean, you just look at like Kenobi and, and Dumbledore and, and Gandalf. I mean, they all look alike. Right. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's essentially the same character. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, you're, you're just kind of like with, with those movies, you're almost just rebranding. Um, I mean, it's all but the same adventure uh, of some kind. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the idea of the, the commoner plucked from the doldrums of society to go on this magical mystical adventure to defeat some dark overlord of some kind. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the quintessential, you know, monument. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you know, th those are fascinating in, in star Wars. There's a little more hidden imagery, um, in, in all of them, actually, I haven't seen the last one yet. Um, the last Jedi, I haven't seen that yet, but I've seen, I've, I've, obviously I've seen one, two, three and four, five and six. I've seen seven. I saw Rogue One, um, and all these movies are, you know, peppered with little esoteric um, imagery. I mean, you know, e even, you know, with, with, with the, the four, five, and six, where you have this, again, this Egyptian motif going on where Luke is, you know, the solar figure. I mean, the name Luke Skywalker, um, the name Luke comes from Latin lux, meaning light, what light walks across the sky, the sun, um, in comparative mythology, you know, this would be Apollo. And of course, Apollo has the lunar sister, Leia, you know, or Diana, excuse me. And of course, Luke has Leia, who's always running around in the white, the white robes of the moon. Um, comparatively, Apollo in Egyptian mythology is Horus. And uh, Horus does battle with uh, a, a dark overlord named Seth. Um, so, of course, we have the Sith in Star Wars, oh, the dark yeah. overlord. Um, so yeah, we have this whole Egyptian compared. I mean, he does, he does very, you know, little adroit things uh, in the films. I mean, if you go into the, um, the, the first movies, I mean, I, I thought the one that was really clever was, I mean, he kind of was doing this consciously where I believe it's in the second one, attack of the clones, where, um, the whole thing represents childbirthing, which is where, when, when, when Obi-Wan Kenobi goes to Kamino, which is where the clones are being made, um, they, 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 um, it's, it's divestment of the sacred feminine. Um, but this is where humans are being made. Um, so when he gets there, it's, it's this turbulent storm with the water raging outside on the surface of the planet. Right. And of course, this is signifying the birthing process of the woman, you know, of, 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 you know, the female, the breaking the water, um, the water coming out. And, and but, but, but what's great is when he gets inside, it's sterile, it's completely dull and boring. Um, and this is because the, the clones are coming from a man, um, and, and there's no women anywhere and everything is 
dull and sterile, but yet the, the Camino person tells uh, Obi-Wan, he says, well, Jango Fett, that's the, the man who they're using to make the clones off of, um, is, uh, you know, is, is suffers great pain. And again, this is paralleling the, the birthing process for the woman. Even he has to suffer pain for the clones to be made. Um, and it, it's interesting because uh, all the clones, you know, are male. Um, and if you fast forward into four, five, six, the empire is nothing but men. Um, there's no sacred feminine. There's no females anywhere. Um, they've completely divested themselves of it. I mean, all it is is, is, is this male hierarchy uh, with with the empire. And you could say that's one of the reasons why they fail. It's not the there's no incorporation of the sacred feminine. So uh, you'll find that in Star Wars. And yeah, absolutely. Just I'll wrap up with the thing with Crowley and and Bond. Yeah, that that's in uh, that's one of my favorite talking points. Uh, that was something I covered in the first movie book. Uh, the whole story with Alistair Crowley and Ian Fleming, um, you know, I've talked about this on other shows, that definitely comes out of the world of you can't make this stuff up. Right. You know, with with Crowley, uh, you know, being a spy, a double agent in World War One and World War II, um, and the guy who was his handler in, in British intelligence was none other than Ian Fleming, uh, the man who wrote the James Bond stories. And, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Crowley came up with the whole V, um, the two points up, three fingers down, 32 um, for Churchill. Uh, this was sort of to counteract the, the Nazi swastika. Um, you had the whole thing. I mean, if you go into the James Bond stories, um, they're overloaded with hermetic um, themes and occult themes uh, in, in the James Bond stories. I mean, even the sigil, uh, you know, 007 uh, is, J, is uh, John D's sigil 007 when he wrote to uh, queen elizabeth um he was involved in a spy ring spy ring uh to protect her and when he wrote correspondences to her it was 007 uh that's where 007 comes from oh. and then uh, uh oh and then the, the other one that was crazy was um when when rudolf hess hitler's deputy flew to um from germany to england to try to uh negotiate a peace he crash landed in Scotland and they captured him, of course, and put him in the Tower of London. Um, and Crowley actually went to Fleming. And this was this is true. Um, and said, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a ceremonial magician. I'm an expert in the occult. Let me you know, we know we know Hess is into astrology. We know a lot of the, the Nazi higher ups are into the occult. Um, and this is very true. I mean, Hitler was Himmler was uh, Goebbels was into Nost uh, Nostradamus. Um, Hess was into astrology big time. Um, so Crowley went to uh, Fleming and said, well, let me go see this guy. Let me go see Rudolf Hess in the Tower of London. He said, I'll, I'll perform some rituals in front of him, you know, conjure a demon or two and scare the living hell out of this guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe we can, um, you know, you know, get some information out of him. And uh, the story is that uh, Fleming liked the idea and actually went to Winston Churchill with it. But uh, Churchill put the uh, Ixnay on it. So it never happened. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's fascinating when you, when you start researching this stuff. I mean, again, the, the world of Freemasonry is loaded with this stuff, you know, of you can't make this stuff up. Um, and that, that's certainly a, a very fascinating story. And if, again, um, you know, this was something I talked about in the first movie book and yeah, absolutely. I love the James Bond stories and I'm a big fan of the movies and, uh, yeah, just overloaded with a lot of esoteric and hermetic, uh, themes and Im imagery. That's fascinating because you, on one level you can watch these movies as a simple kind of male fantasy of, you know, get the get the girl, save the day, get the bad guy. And on a deeper level, you can watch them over and over again trying to spot the symbolism in them. It's fantastic.
Um, so, I, you know, I wanted to say, like, we, we keep you're talking about these like amazing tales of the past. You know, this the the, the story of Horus and and um, Set, and that that story is a fantastic story. Uh, and and these are sort of, I guess, um, myths of of old, right? And nowadays we have this rich, you know, immersive cinema experience that's sort of almost ritualistic, right? I mean, you go to a theater, you're sitting in the dark, you know, there's a, the only thing that's bright in the whole room is the, the, the movie that's packed with, you know, everything that the director and the producer and everybody that everything chose, they, they chose for a particular reason. Every, you know, I've worked on, on movies, uh, you know, some small movie sets before in college and stuff. And it's, everything is meticulously planned out and, you know, the shirt color to the hat on somebody. So it's, fa it's fascinating. And it's sort of, you know, it's kind of our modern day uh, ritual to go to the movie and to enjoy a story. And obviously, we always enjoy the stories that are really packed with with meaning and purpose. Would you consider this to be like our new mythology of our times? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with your assessment there. Um, I mean, I think absolutely movies are mythology making. I think it's you could craft the argument. And I think you're spot on. You know, a lot of it is just rebranding or renaming uh, these movies. Um, you know, you, you will find um, the, the, you know, religious archetypes, um, you know, whether it be set, you know, with the Egyptian mythology is sort of runs parallel with the Christian. Um, that's a different story. I get into that much more in the book, but that's, uh, you know, not, not a coincidence. Um, but absolutely. I mean, you look at um, like, for instance, um, you know, you get into the Christ archetype, the savior archetype, the solar hero, the solar god man. I mean, you know, this is, you know, Luke Skywalker who does battle with the dark evil lord and defeats the dark evil lord. Um, you know, you look at, uh, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings, same thing. You got the, you know, uh, the, the hermit archetype. Um, you know, I call it the Hermes Trismegistus archetype, uh, the god of magic. Um, so, you know, you find the Christ imagery there. And in mythology, Hermes Trismegistus prophesies the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, you, you've got themes, you know, Harry Potter, the same thing. Um, killed, in, you know, you know, you know, doing battle with the dark evil lord. Uh, you, you have Harry Potter being killed and resurrected in the Matrix, mm -hmm. same thing. Right. Neo being from the you know population doing battle with the dark evil lord the machines killed and resurrected so you have um i mean a lot of you know religious mythological symbolism going on i mean and you know those examples are kind of obvious but you'll find it in other stuff um superman uh the only begotten son sent down from the heavenly father uh to teach mankind the error of his ways by performing miracles and you know in, in the <laughs> 1977 one with uh yeah yeah uh, Christopher Reeve. I mean, he resurrects the the, 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 the dead. Uh, he resurrects Lois Lane. Um, the Green Mile. John Coffey. J. C. Um, you know, dies for the sins of the South and performs miracles by he healing the sick and resurrects the little dead mouse. Um, the the uh, John Connor. J. C. Virgin birth. Um, you know, from a father from the future, and you know, does battle. Savior of mankind. Does battle with the dark evil machines. Yeah, um, Terminator. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the day the Earth stood still, uh, the benevolent uh, space alien who comes down from the heavens to teach mankind the error of his ways, and they call him Carpenter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you will find this stuff um, there. It's very well hidden, though, right, um, a lot right. of times. And it's, and it's finding the correct context of what these guys are trying to talk about. And uh, I was fascinated enough by it and, and absolutely convinced 
100% that this was intentional. I, I do not believe this is to be a coincidence that I uh, wrote two books about it and um, I'm currently outlining a third. Excellent. Yes. And um, I, I wanted, you know, you, you meant you brought up prophesized. Uh, I, you said that word in it and it just, just struck with me because, um, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, there's, there's, it, it, it can be kind of on your website, right? You have uh, an excerpt from cinema, uh, cinema symbolism too, um, more esoteric imagery, imagery and popular movies. <clears throat> and you say cinema can also be prophetic. Uh, Thomas Neo Anderson's passport expires September 11th, 2001. Um, so, it, you know, and it's like, th- we definitely see messages like like we definitely see things like this popping up in cinema where they're sort of predicting uh events and i know there's there's like a famous simpsons one going around where the simpsons you know there people are saying matt groaning is a time traveler and you know people are coming up with all kinds of crazy theories but maybe it's not so crazy when you understand that this this goes you know this is um something that's being done intentionally, or maybe there's people that are doing things with certain agendas or something. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. How could we explain some of these prophetic, uh, predictive uh, events in, in, in cinema? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question, um, because I believe that the, the imagery in films is intentional. Um, but so, you know, how do we account for this? I mean, and there is, you know, some of the stuff with 9-11, you know, when you get back in time, I think it's a little, you know, when you the farther away you move and back in time away from it, I think you are getting into a little bit of a coincidence. But when you get close to it, I mean, you're definitely seeing some things that are popping up that really can't be explained. Um, the, the Neo Passport one, and, and the reason why that is so important, is that movie has to do with, you know, death of the old, rebirth to the new, um, you know, and, and you, you know, some people have timed that the 9-11 has to do with the, you know, it's a event time to the end of the old age of Pisces, the start of the new age of Aquarius. Um, and then, then you had uh, that year in 01, uh, back in March of 01, um, there was a, a Fox TV show called The Lone Gunman. Uh, which was a spinoff of the X-Files. And the first episode, the pilot episode, dealt with terrorists hijacking uh, planes and a false flag uh, and flying them into the World Trade Center. Mm. Um, and that was just, you know, four or five months, you know, before the actual thing. And then the other one that was really screwy was uh, The Patriot, which came out in the summer of 2000. So about 15, 16 months before uh, 9-11 was, if you watch The Patriot with Mel Gibson, uh he 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 at the very beginning of it he's making a chair in his barn um and he takes the chair he weighs it uh and he the 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 chair weighs exactly nine pounds 11 ounces um and then he takes the chair off the scale and sits on and it comes crashing down um i thought that was uh yeah i thought that one was a really screwy one so i i've often asked myself yeah how do you account for this and really one one of the you know if you if you exclude time travel and you you know, I mean, it's really hard for me to, dif- it's really difficult for me to believe that, you know, that these filmmakers are, you know, planting this in there and have foreknowledge of this. I mean, that doesn't really kind of add up to me. So nevertheless, it is there. So how do you account for it? I turn to um, the world of Carl Jung, the Swiss uh, psychiatrist. Um, and what he, what he talked about was this theory um, that comes from the Greek philosopher Plato. Um, and Plato called this thing the theory of forms. Mm. Um, and what, what Jung called it was the collective unconscious. And what he said was, um, and what I'm about to say is somewhat controversial, and this can't be proven. This is just my hypothesis or theory on this. Um, what Jung said was, 
that there were these certain archetypal imagery imagery all that were all that we all had. Uh, it's passed down to us in our subconscious minds, um, and in this dwells in this unconscious collective. Um, dwells the archetypes and this archetypal imagery. You know, why do we know the color? Well, why do we know the color red is red? Uh, right. We just know it. Right. You know, we know the color blue is blue when we see it. We don't know why, but we know that's blue and that's orange and that's green. We all know that's a, cha- t- a table, that's a chair. It's the same thing with the archetypes. You know, the wizard, the, the solar hero, the dark villain, the trickster, the lovers, the mother, the father. Um, these are all archetypes that turn up in... Um, in, 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 in our subconscious mind and turn up in popular culture, especially in films. And what Young said was, this is all inherited in our subconscious mind. What I proposed in the books was, um, if this is uh, some sort of inherited mechanism that clearly is being repeated in film, you know, whether it be Star Wars or Harry Potter or, you know, Frankenstein or, you know, you, you, know, you name it, um, is could the collective unconscious also be inherited? Um, could it be predictive? Um, since we, since what Young is saying is it's all inherited, um, could this also some, you know, you know, could, could through the creation of art, um, which is what film is, could we be subconsciously being tuned into the future, um, and be putting this material in the film or in our artwork, um, unaware of it. Um, yet it turns out to be true somehow. Um, that's what I kind of, think might be going on with this um certainly i can't prove it um but that seems to be sort of a rational explanation to it is that you know since films are really an ultimate form of expression ultimate artwork could something like neo's passport or the thing with mel gibson's chair um could this be the collective unconscious working in reverse and working as a predictive mechanism um i can't prove that um, it's just my hypothesis on it, but it does seem to make sense to me um, when you look at it. Um, the 9-11 stuff isn't, isn't the only uh, material. Um, there are some other in- interesting, I talk about it in the book, um, some interesting um, instances where movies have been prophetic. Um, it's more innocuous. It's not, it's not anything like 9-11, but it is strange, um, nevertheless. Um, you know, there was a, a, a film that came out, um, this one was always, this one I just thought was really, really kind of weird. It was a movie that came out in the early 1980s. I want to say it came out in 82 or 83. Um, it was a movie called Hanky Panky. Um, and movie, the movie kind of, I don't think it was a big box office hit. Um, the movie starred, starred, uh, Gene Wilder. Um, and it was this, it was, I think it was set on a train. It was like a murder mystery. Um, and the, 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 it was told to you over and over again, I think the, the uh, character of, um, this is innocuous, but I mean, this, this did happen. Um, the, the, the Gene Wilder character was from Chicago. Um, and this was repeated several times in the movie. He was from Chicago, Illinois. Um, and his character's name was Michael Jordan, um, huh. of all things. And it was about 16 months after this movie came out that Michael Jordan, the basketball player, uh, was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. Um, wow. and I, I mean, you know, it, it's completely innocuous, but I mean, it is kind of the screwy thing going on, um, where you had this character named Michael Jordan from Chicago, Illinois, of all things. That's, um, that's, if you go yeah. watch, 
That's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's it funny that I, you bring that up, though, today, now to me, because earlier today I was playing basketball with my brother and uh, I put it on the Chicago Bulls like theme song as they come out on the court. And I was just messing right. around doing the voice. And I was like, and now you're Chicago Bulls. Welcome, Michael Jordan. So that's kind of interesting that I was just do- I was talking about Michael Jordan today and then you bring him up now on the, on the podcast. But that's. Well, it's interesting because that's what's called, that's what's called synchronicity. That's right, where right. Um, things are lined up. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the um, theme music um, that the Chicago Bulls came into, I don't know, what you, do you know what that's named? Oh, no. What's the name of it? It's called Sirius. Oh, uh, wow. Wow. Yeah, it's by it's by um, the Alan Parson Project. Right. The name yes, of the song Alan is Parson actually, Project, yes. Yeah, it's called Sirius, uh, the Egyptian dog star, which we were talking about. Right. So, I mean, there you go. Very prophetic. Um, seems to have been anticipating our interview today. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, there it is. There's a great example of it. Um, that This is, you know, very synchronistic uh, that that would be the case. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the example that I give with the, the, the Gene Wilder movie, I mean, this is obviously totally innocuous, innocent, but I mean, there it is. Um, and I can't account for it. I mean, you know, I mean, but, you know, it's, it's just so screwy um, that that would happen. Um, I document a few more in the books. I mean, I, I'm with you, Mike. I mean, I definitely believe you. I mean, I definitely believe it's there. And I, you know, I mean, it, it's a fascinating study. That's really one of the ways I kind of justify it is synchronicity, the collective unconscious as a yeah. prophetic mechanism. Um, yeah. There definitely seems to be something to this, though. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in my experience with the psychedelic state of conscious, you know, the altered state of consciousness, the psychedelic space um, with meditation and kind of astral projection and these sorts of things, it, you know, once you understand, I, I, I guess that there, you know, the reality that we see in front of us isn't the only reality that there's actually more to what meets the eye, of course, um, that it is quite possible. I do have a tendency, you know, to believe that there is some kind of infinite eternal kind of pool of collective unconscious that is going on. And, you know, maybe even some sort of, um, historical memory field. I think uh, Rupert Sheldrake talks about this with like a morphic resonant field or something where there's all of these sorts of ideas and meanings that have uh, symbols and meanings and numbers that, that uh, you know, have gone back for, for a long, long time that mean something that are coming to us and kind of maybe using people as conduits to project their their symbolism and their messages or, or something like this. And, you know, in the creative state, sometimes I, I sketch or, you know, even when I'm sure you probably get into a creative flow state where it seems like, you know, there's just time just passes by and it doesn't even exist anymore. And you're just, you know, maybe you're writing and, you know, something like that. And it's like, well, where is this creativity coming from? It almost seems like you're just the, um, you know, mechanism that is making it work. It's a, maybe a symbiotic relationship between the conscious field of reality that we exist in now and this other world that we just kind of pull things from or that come to us. Uh, maybe, you know, like you mentioned before that the lucid dream that you had, uh, Absolutely, it, you know. So yeah, this is this is uh, this is pretty mind blowing stuff right here. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, absolutely, Mike. I think I think you're spot on with this. Um, I've done other shows, um, with people who you know, uh, you know, are into dream analysis, uh, psychic, uh, vision, um, things of that nature, and I, you know, they said to me, 
Um, you know, I, I make it perfectly clear when I first started doing this, I mean, I had no intention, none whatsoever of ever writing a work of fiction. Um, this was not something that I'd ever even planned on. And, uh, the, the dream came to me. It came to me in April of 2013. And this was right when, after Royal Arch had come out and right when I was writing cinema symbolism, the first one in earnest. Um, and I had this very lucid dream. Um, and you know, I wrote it down. I, I woke, I mean, the dream was very, very, very vivid. And, um, I woke up and I made notes at my desk and it was like six o'clock in the morning. The dream felt like it lasted all night. I mean, I had dialogue, I had character names, very vivid. I wrote it all down. And, um, you know, I remember sitting there and I was starting to outline it. And, uh, you know, when I started talking to people about this, you know, they kind of hinted at what you're suggesting that, you know, this was the creative process that cause you were, had written the one book and had done the other one, you had opened your mind up to this, you know, conscious stream of intelligence that you didn't know was there and that this book was you know someone you know being to you or gifted to you um you know because you had you know opened your mind to the creative process so you know i mean it could be um i have i have no idea but it, it certainly feels that way to me um because like i said i, I had really no intention of doing this um but I, I was real happy with the way the book came out in fact so happy um, with it, I'm actually planning a sequel and a prequel to it. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it just was one of those things that happened, uh, and I didn't really, really plan on it. But I, I tend to agree with you that you know, you definitely open yourself up to you know an altered state of consciousness um, where things you know be become much more lucid that you didn't know were there, but but were there. Right. Yes. And you know, um, with my experience working with indigenous shamans of peru and and the ayahuasca work that they do and there is there is sort of this awareness that you know there's there could be sort of bad spirits or negative energy or kind of um you know however you want to put it that there could be kind of like dark forces out there and i think that um you know sometimes we we see you know, for me, I'm very aware of sort of movies that, that I see, maybe even a trailer or two that comes on. I go, well, clearly this is this is a propagandistic agenda being driven really, really, you know, here. Um, so I want to talk maybe a little bit about some of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we could kind of talk a little bit about uh, if, if you feel comfortable talking about this, like what do you, th do you think and do you explain in the book at all about maybe some sort of dark entities or dark forces that are maybe trying to kind of shape the world in a particular way? Because maybe I could re rephrase the question a little bit better, actually. Um, what I'm trying to say is that I think that obviously, right, I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about Star Wars and we're talking about the hero that has to fight the Dark Lord. Well, I think that we it's safe to say that this is actually happening in our world now. And I think that it, it plays out in, in sort of different ways. I mean, I, you know, no one's really taking a lightsaber to, you know, having a lightsaber fight, but maybe maybe the, the kind of fights uh, come through in different ways. And so uh, there seems to be people working in the media, in Hollywood and all over the place. Maybe, I don't know, do they have sort of a nefarious agenda? Maybe they want to keep people sort of asleep, kind of, you know, like drones and zombies and just kind of complacent with the status quo. And then it seems like to me, you know, hopefully what I can do on this show and by having people like you on and stuff is sort of alert people and kind of aware, make them aware of what's going on a little bit. So, um, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about, about some of that. Yeah. I, I never really saw it 
whenever I do the movie, the, you know, analysis, I never saw any like dark motivation behind it. Um, you know, some of it can be dark itself. Um, but I mean, I, I never really found like some sort of dark. I mean, you know, when you're dealing with hidden symbols, I mean, some people think, I guess, because it's hidden, it is, but the idea that it's hidden or not, you know, fully, you know, made available to your conscious mind that that by default makes it evil or something. I, I don't see it that way. Um, you know, I, th I think a lot of times, I mean, what I, what I describe the movie, a lot of the movie symbolism to what I, I say it's akin to, it's like akin to sacred geometry. Right. Um, you know, when you walk into one of these Gothic cathedrals, you can't specifically see the golden ratio. Um, you can't see, uh, the vesica Pisces, um, but you can see flying buttresses and you can tell you're in an impressive, um, structure designed to affect you. Um, you know, to, to make you believe you're in a temple of God, um, to, to impress this upon you, um, you know, with the long naves and the vaulted ceilings and the flying buttresses. This is all intentionally done to affect you, um, you know, humble you, uh, make you believe that you're in a temple of worship, that you're closer to God. Um, this is what I kind of say what is going on with the akin to the movie symbolism. It's designed now, it's not on its surface. But it's a, it's designed to transform the movie into mythology. It's it, it's it's you, you're getting more than one story. Um, you're getting these deep esoteric themes going on. Um, these filmmakers are very adroit with hiding this stuff. Um, especially people you know like Stanley Kubrick and Darren Aronofsky. Mm. Um, these guys really know what they're doing. Right, um, right, and, and are real masters at it. I mean, you know, like The Shining has a lot of repetition in it. Uh, Crimson Peak um, has a lot of uh, imagery that repeats from The Shining. Um, you know, Black Swan has an alchemical storyline. Uh, you know, the Star Wars films have the monomyth. I never really interpreted this as like, you know, this as evil. Um, right. I think it's hidden, um, but I never really saw a dark hand behind any of this. Um, you know, uh, I mean, that that's just my opinion on it. I think it, uh, to me personally, I thought this was much more interesting. Um, and the, and to study the lengths that these filmmakers will go and, and revealing this material, um, that to me was really a challenge and, and, and was what really fascinated me. Um, when, when, when I watch a film that's overloaded with symbolism, I never get, get, get the impression that, oh, this is evil, right, um, right. or this is no good, or this is black magic. I mean, I, I think it's more of, um, you know, the filmmakers <laughs> being very clever and being very adroit yeah. um, and really trying to challenge the viewer to say, hey, man, can you pick up on some of this stuff? Um, that's my take on it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I I, I, I I think I agree with you 110 percent on that, because, right, it takes a certain level of of, of I mean, it takes a very a high level of, of intelligence and curiosity and cleverness to, to do that. And for people to notice, and I think it's fantastic. And, you know, that is a, a sort of a, an awakening kind of experience of shaping and uplifting the human spirit to be closer to the divine and to the story and the power of myth and the stuff that is kind of dark and kind of maybe demonic and dumbing us down is like, I don't know, keeping up with the Kardashians or something like that, right? Like, yeah, the, there's yeah, nothing. Exactly. It's just bland, dull, dumb, nothing entertainment. Yeah, right. You know, you know, something like that. I mean, I think you know, like you said, that's just like you know to put you to sleep almost. Right. Um. But you know, you want even like a dark movie, um, like say like The Exorcist, for say, which I mean is a very very dark film. 
um, that has that has very interesting symbolism in it, um, you know, and, and again has has a lot of you know veiled veiled themes in it again with light and dark things like that, um, and again it was just for me, um, you know, when I find some when I watch a movie and I see something really interesting with it or pick up on something, I mean my you know my reaction to it is oh wow look at that you know can can you believe you know my goodness gracious I mean here we go again I can't believe I just saw that you know that's fascinating you know that you know they actually did that thought enough of that to you know, put that in or, 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 you know, author the movie with it. That to me was, you know, that's my reaction to it when I, when I find it, yeah. I never, I've never had the reaction when I see it, like, Oh my God, you know, I'm being mind controlled or something like that. <laughs> I've just been fascinated, um, by, you know, by the imagery and that, you know, these people will, uh, you know, the, the lengths these people will go to, to incorporate it. And, and it, you know, it fascinated me so much, Mike, that, you know, like I said, I wrote two books about it. So, right, right, right. Uh, you know, you know, there was, yeah, it is interesting. It's um like before when you were talking about how do we know red is red and and that sort of thing. There is this kind of feeling that you get when you do spot these these um these things in the in cinema and in the movies. Um, it's like making that connection, and it's making that connection in a new and novel way because these archetypes have been redone and reformed and rebranded. So it is it is pretty re, you know and reinvigorating to the soul almost to say aha you know this is yeah, a, exactly. this is a hero I can get behind here yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and when 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 um, you know, I watched uh, you know, you know, a film or whatever, and I could start picking up on this stuff. It again, it's oh my goodness gracious. Okay, now I see what they're going for, and you know, you know, now now I you know I can really start to dissect it. And what it does is it tips you off to other things to look for, um, in, right. in, in the story. So you know, like I said, I've never I've never seen it as you know dark. I mean. If you want to go down that route, I mean, the, the only way you could say it is, okay, it's it's being concealed from you. But, you know, I don't believe if something's hidden, that doesn't necessarily make it evil. Right, um, it mean, right. You know, it means maybe you need to, you know, start learning and ha learning how to decipher this stuff. Step I mean, your game up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, step your game up and figure out why it is. Right, um, right. But, but, you know, that that's my take on it. So I'm also curious to know some of your favorite movies. Maybe they'll line up with some of my favorite movies, and then maybe we can talk about that. Um, so, yeah, what 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 are some movies that are really, you know, your favorites? You know, packed with symbolism and meaning, stuff that really hits home for you. Right, right, sure. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll caveat this answer or question um, just by saying this. Um, I, I should point this out because um, it's important for the listeners. Not every movie has esoteric imagery in it. Right. Um, I only analyze movies that I'm 100% convinced it's going on in them. Um, and not having it doesn't necessarily make the movie bad. Mm -hmm. For instance, I'm a big fan of the movie Reservoir Dogs. Oh, uh, yeah. But, but you know, nothing nothing going on. Um, maybe a couple archetypes here and there. But by and large, entertaining movie. I think it's very good. But nothing hidden uh, under the surface or anything. Movies that I really like that have hidden meaning, um, that have the esoteric imagery in it, sure. Uh, let's see. Well, we've done Star Wars. I mean, I grew up, I was born in 71. Um, so I grew up on the first three Star Wars movies. Um, the one movie that I really liked um, that, that has a lot of Gnostic themes in it is Fight Club, mm. uh, you know, with Brad Pitt and, and Norton. Uh, that's a great film. That's one of my all time favorites. And uh, that has that has some great esoteric uh, themes in it. Um, one of my all time favorite movies was um, uh, growing up was uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, um, right. The, yeah. The, 
spaghetti western that has a lot of religious symbolism in yeah it. you know uh, yeah you mentioned that the um the biblical christian roman catholic uh, esoteric archetypes in in the in those spaghetti westerns that i find to be very fascinating because i never would have thought that you know watching those movies would would uh would have that so that's 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 great and that's in that's in uh cinema uh symbolism too right yeah that's absolutely right i i took one um some Western movies. Western is one of my one of my all time favorite genres, um, right. and I covered five movies: um, the three Sergio Leone uh, spaghetti westerns, uh, the red the movie by John with Sir John Wayne called Red River. Um, that really has a lot of the masculine archetypes in it. I mean, the, the, that really is sort of your prototypical masculine archetypal movie is Red River with John Wayne. And then I did the Magnificent Seven. This was the original one with Yul Brenner. Um, again, a lot of archetypal imagery in that. The Spaghetti Westerns of Leone, um, I'm a big fan of all three of them. The, the Good, the Bad is the best one, though, uh, by far and away. And uh, um, he was uh, he was raised a Roman Catholic. And um, you'll find this. I, I, I say the movies are akin to Christian Kabbalism. Uh, you will find these very deep, esoteric, mystical Christian themes uh, in, in, in those three films. Uh, he toys around with it with the first one, which is... Uh, uh, fistful of dollars, mm -hmm. which is where Clint Eastwood plays, you know, sort of the blue, blue, blue eyed, you know, golden haired, you know, savior Christ figure, uh, doing battle with the two evil houses, the Rojas and the Baxters. Um, this is all very much concealed beneath the surface. You have the Baxters who are sort of the, the, the demonic evil gangsters. They, they burned, you know, the, the, the Baxters alive. They burned their house down. It's very hellfire-ish. The one woman can, compares the one uh, Rojas to the devil himself. Um, you have the devil holding uh, uh, Marisol um, captive. And, of course, she wants to get back to her, her child and husband. And, of course, the child's name is named Jesus. Mm. Um, so we have Clint Eastwood who unifies Marisol, Mary, and Jesus, the unification of Madonna and child. Um, you know, investing, you know, you know uh, Clint Eastwood is sort of the savior figure. Um, at the end, you know, he Clint Eastwood gets wounded. He goes to the subterranean crypt to heal, emerges, and now can perform miracles, bl blocking the bullets. So again, we have this Christ imagery. Um, he carries this forward, uh, Leone does, with the next one, which is for a few dollars more. Um, I'll let people read on that one. Um, but yeah. the one that he really gets involved with it in is, is Good, the Band, the Ugly. This is where the one where he really perfects it, um, where you clearly have um, you know, the, the Blondie character, Clint Eastwood, again, playing the Christ figure, God of uh, the good. Um, and of course, he's doing battle with the devil, who is Lee Van Cleef, the bad, dressed in black uh, in, in the in the entire movie, um, runs the death camp where, you know, the, the prisoners are, are denigrated. Um, Clint Eastwood, when he's actually introduced, you'll hear the angelic music playing behind him. Uh, at the end of the movie, he goes into a church where there's a dying soldier and he comforts him um, by giving him the cigar. Um, this is obviously an act of divine mercy. And of course, what's going on in, in the film? Well, the God and the devil character are constantly battling for the soul of the ugly. Uh, this is Eli Wallach, uh, who is mankind. Um, and, wow. uh, you know, and it's ugly because it's the fall of Eden. Um, it's the state of original sin. Um, so you have in the entire film, uh, God versus the devil trying to claim the soul of mankind, who is the ugly. Um, there are some astrological archetypes going on in this as well. I want people to read the book for those. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a great, it's a great film anyway. Um, but yeah, overloaded with a lot of esoteric, 
um, religious symbolism. I'll just wrap up on this, Mike, by saying these exact same themes uh, that we are talking about with this were incorporated by another Roman Catholic filmmaker in a movie that he made in the early 2000s. Martin Scorsese uh, uses these exact, I mean, an exact same techniques in a movie called The Gangs of New York. Right, yes. Uh, yeah, with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio, and uh, it's 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 almost it's it's very it's the same thing. It's very it's a lot of religious allegory in that movie. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, if if you like if you like the spaghetti westerns and you like that religious symbolism, take a look at uh, Gangs of New York. Oh, oh, very yeah. over with a lot of Christian symbolism. Yeah, I watched that recently. Yeah, the Five Points, the uh, the Dead Rabbits, the whole thing. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis is uh, such a phenomenal actor too. It's uh great movie i I really like that one um yeah yeah i mean wow this stuff is so fascinating maybe we could talk a little bit about um one of my favorite movies you know i brought up uh the fact that i wanted to talk about either my favorite movies your favorite movies but one of my favorite movies of all time is blade runner maybe we could talk a little bit about that all Um, right no blade runner yeah blade runner is it's funny you mentioned that that is a very uh it's not funny you mentioned it it's a great film anyway um it's a decidedly gnostic film you have in this, um, I haven't seen the new one yet, um, but I, I want to, I'm actually writing, so Blade Runner was something, a movie that I touched on, I did it in the first movie book. Um, I'm right. I'm actually outlining Cinema Symbolism 3 right now. I'm going to do a chapter called Gnostic Cinema, um, and I'm going to cover some of the Gnostic movies that I, you know, I haven't um, done in, in, in other books, such as uh, you know, movies like Dark City, um, Vanilla Sky, things like that, um, The Metropolis uh, by Fritz Lang. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to revisit, um, I'm not, I don't want to get into it too in depth, but I definitely want to hit on some of the points with Blade Runner. I mean, you, you have in that the Kabbalistic Golem, uh, with Roy Batty, uh, the machine, um, who is a golem, uh, you know, this comes out of the Bible, uh, you know, a, a creature, uh, a man-made creature invested with human characteristics. Um, a lot of times these creatures, uh, the golems are more philosophical than their human counterparts. Um, and this of course is the case with Batty. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the whole idea in this of Descartes, who may be a replicant. Also, um, this is something that's teased in the, in, in, in the uh, in the first one. Um, is uh, you know going on the hunt, you know, for, for these replicants, the Nexus Sixes, and um, you know, you know, you know, it's this whole idea of the machines are deserving of life as well. Um, I mean, they're, you know, they're actually invested with human, you know, human souls, um, and you find this with Batty at the end, you know, where they ascend the building. Uh, you know, in the rain, think baptism, they go up the building to, you know, climbing the mountain of Gnosis, they ascend the ladder. And this is, of course, where um, Batty, you know, you know, expires in front of, um, of, of uh, Descartes. Um, And uh, it's interesting, too, because we don't have time to get into this. The whole name of Rick Descartes is a play on uh, the uh, French philosopher René Descartes. Ah, um, I think therefore I am. Yeah. Yeah, who, 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 you know, wrote, wrote about emotions and the human soul and uh, things like that. Wow. And uh, discovers that Batty is, of course, um, you know, invested with a soul. And then you have Batty there in the pouring rain um, releases the dove. And, of course, this comes out of the New Testament where when Christ is baptized, you know, again, think of the pouring rain. Um, when Christ is baptized by John the Baptist, uh, the dove ascends as an emblem of his divine soul, uh, the Holy Spirit. And of course, when Batty uh, Rutger Hauer expires, there he releases the dove. So it's his, his divine soul ascending to heaven, essentially. Wow. Um, and it's a whole idea of that um, Descartes has now received gnosis, 
um, a pot, you know, you know, he's received wisdom that the replicants are, you know, are not just soulless, mindless creatures. They're invested with a soul from Terrell. Um, interesting symbol with the owl uh, being the symbol of Terrell uh, Corporation. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up because I was like that well, right. when you mentioned the dove, I was like, there's there's so many bir- like little bird images in this movie the owl the dove and then there's that origami thing that they make i, I don't know exactly what kind of right, bird swan oh unicorn right yeah yeah it has to do with the unicorn symbolizes the human mind it's the pineal gland and again it, it that comes out of the works of manly p hall um it, it has to do with the mind and receiving wisdom um and the 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 owl is of course another symbol of wisdom it ties into the goddess minerva um that was her sacred totem was was the owl and um, so, yeah, not only are the uh, not only a Thorell, Thorell Corporation um, creating life, they're creating wisdom. Um, and mm. this is a tip off that, you know, that the, the that they're investing these nexus system sixes with wisdom. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a great movie and it's, it's just load, loaded with, you know, the, I mean, you know, you, you'll, you'll see this motif play out again. Um, this exact same motif play out again in, in the movie called V for Vendetta. Um, oh, yeah. Where Natalie's character. You know, it's the same thing. She ascends the building in the pouring rain um, to be baptized, you know, to join V's nihilistic mission against uh, Norse Fire England. Um, you know, she receives epiphany. She receives wisdom. She receives awakening. Um, Dorothy Gale in Wizard of Oz, you know, receives the same thing. There's no place like home. It's her Gnostic epiphany. Um, and we have the same theme going on inside of Blade Runner. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. I, I talk about it in the in the first cinema book. And uh, it, it's something I'm going to um, probably revisit a little bit in the third cinema book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a great film. It's one of my all time favorites also. And, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, overloaded with esoteric imagery. Well, that's that's fantastic, Robert. And thank you so much for for for, you know, diving into all these things. I feel like we went all over the place here. It was really great conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And and, um, you know, I'm I'm so thrilled to to be entering into this new world of information and picking apart all this stuff and i can't wait to actually dive into uh the royal arch of enoch the the impact of masonic ritual philosophy and symbolism um that's that's uh that's my next book that's my mission right there and and i recommend everybody go and and get these books and uh and uh you know get your own gnosis right get get your gnosis on (laughs) as the kids are saying these days and um yeah and and you can and people can get all your books uh, to dive further into these topics cinema symbolism and cinema symbolism too um where where can people go and and uh and find you and find your books and and maybe you can give me your website and um social media stuff Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me on your podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. I thought the show was tremendous, and I really appreciate it. And anytime you want to have me back on, I'd love to come back on. Excellent. Uh, we, can, we can do it all over again. We talk about new movies and Freemasonry and anything you want to. I'm working on some more books, so you know, would most welcome a chance to come back on. If you're interested um, in, in me and you want to find out more about me and my books, the easiest way is just go to my website, uh, which is uh, my name. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. Uh, my website is my name. It's www.robertwsullivan and the letter I, the letter V for the fourth.com. RobertWSullivanIV.com. It's um, from there you can purchase the books. Uh, they are all they're available on all the main online retailers, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, of course, Books a Million. Uh, you can get the print edition. You can get the ebook. Uh, whatever fits fits you, that's no problem. Um, there's information there about me, my biography. 
my social media. You can follow me on Twitter. I have a YouTube channel where I have loads of uh, you know radio shows archived. Um, that, that's all. That's all completely. Con- yeah, that content is free. You can listen to that anytime. I have um, I have uh, updated uh, events and appearance page, uh, media and press where this show will go when it's eventually posted. Um, this is constantly being updated with you know shows I'm you know have been on or are going to be on. Um, so just go to my website. It's very easy to navigate. Um, you know, again, you can follow me on social media from there uh, and buy the books. Of course, loads of links to purchase the books, ebook or print edition. www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robert. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, take care. Peace. I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. You know what to do if you love this show. Share it, like it, spread it with your friends. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker. And uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. Or you can go on iTunes and leave me a nice five-star rating and review. Whatever you do, thank you for listening. Much love to you all. Peace.